Come in, Ocean Sailor. Come in, Ocean Sailor. The Ocean Sailor Podcast. Brought to you by Ocean Sailor Magazine and Kraken Yachts. And welcome to Ocean Sailor Podcast, episode 8, with me, Dick Durham, and with he, Dick Beaumont. And we are going to listen to part two of Totem, the sailing yacht the couple on board have their three children and have taught them as they've sailed around the world. So pretty remarkable stuff. And I think uh, some possibly interesting questions, Dick, coming up this time. So, yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, it's, we're already on uh, podcast number eight. And this is the second part, as Dick's already said, of the Totem uh, podcast. In the first part, it was very, very interesting. You know, not many people have done um, what they've done with their children. A lot of people have taken off for a year or two, but this is a much more extended lifetime plan, really. And in part two, we're going to try and ask them some of the poignant questions about how it all works out, how it worked out for the parents, how it worked out for the kids. Um, and uh, and what their plans are for the future. So it's looking really good, and uh, I think we should just get on with it. Uh, I think that's a good idea. Um, I want to I'm, I want to ask you uh, a question. I think a lot of people would cons- ask and consider, but I'd like to hear what you thought of of thinking. Well, have we done it right? Have we done it right by our kids? It's quite clear to see the fantastic advantage uh, that they've got in the opportunity to see the world. But of course, you know, these things play in your mind. Um, And I think many, many, many parents would be, let's say, very concerned about what we can say is depriving their kids of, of that standard education you know, from perhaps 11, 12, 13 year old. What, what do you think? What was your mindset about that? Oh my goodness. I am so convinced that um, it's been a really a great gift for our kids to skip some of those, especially early and middle teen years in mainstream culture, because it is so cruel. Um, kids can be awful to each other at that age. And they're kind of trying to figure out who, who they are a little bit. And this is when you see like clicks forming and us versus them stuff and now that there's social media to help power and fuel some of that backstabby gossipy stuff what a nightmare i'm so glad and you know what what hammers that home for me if i ever get that feeling of are we really doing the right thing is to check in with um my peers my my parent peers back in the states back where we used to live and the kinds of things that they're dealing with with their kids and think wow i'm so glad we don't have those issues We've we've spared our kids a lot of um, a lot of angst. Uh, I think. By yeah, this I mean, choice. I think it's I think it's very easy to be able to identify increased risks that your children may have had as a result of sailing across the ocean. And what people I think forget is, and I think this is particularly poignant when you're talking about kids, is the trade-off. On one hand, there are risks let's say, on on an open sea on a small boat. At the same stage, of course, there are terrific risks um, that every parent spends their paranoid life worrying about, which is somebody stealing their children while they're, you know, not watching properly or, you know, being caught up in car accidents. And in your own country, um, the US, of course, you know, the terrible gun crimes that are going on um, and particularly visited on sometimes, you know, schools and uh, and young people. And then there's the drugs culture um, that you're able to take your children out of. So nonetheless, I, I'm kind of guessing that you must have had a fair bit of criticism one way or another from people who thought you were dreadful people doing this. Of course. Is that is that right? Oh, oh absolutely. absolutely. It's it's very true. And I think a lot of it just stems from, um, a, well, two things. One is a place of kind of the the fear, right, of um, what we're, what they think we're facing and the dangers they think we're facing. And the fact that yes. they accept the dangers in their lives because they can't do anything about them. They're used to the fact that, you know, that we've got gun violence, that there's um, incredible, that highways are so dangerous to be on. So these, there are all of these really huge risks that go in normal everyday life that they're just like, mm, huh. Exactly you know? my point. It's, you know? it's Meanwhile, like three weeks ago, um, three teenagers on the little island that were from 
in the States were killed because they were being stupid, drinking and drove off a cliff. You know, I mean, our kids are not in the prep in the situation that puts pressure on them to have ever landed in that place. Before we left and we were preparing to go, there, there was a lot of judgment about what we were doing and we, we expected it. There was some that was more harsh than we ever imagined could be possible. And it was things about we're ruining our uh, children's educational future they're not going to be normal because they're not socialized out in the mm -hmm. ocean by themselves. And that um, we're, we're putting them into situations of undue risk. And, and here's what I really believe, that part of it is that they just can't appreciate, they don't have the knowledge about the real right. risk versus theirs. But the other is that they look at our plans and we're not judging them. But I think the reaction is that they're, they feel that they are being judged because we're choosing to do something different and awesome. And they're mm. kind of going to stay in the same little patterned life that they've got. And that's comfortable and that's fine. And no judgment there that, you know, mm. we were really glad to break out of it. But I think that it makes them negatively react um, because of because some of people, some people yeah. actually get it and they've got some wanderlust or some travel uh, interest and, mm -hmm. and they, they think it's amazing. And other people um, live in their town their entire lives and that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But, but to overlay these judgments, um, we don't quite understand because in the U.S. there are 35,000 people killed in car accidents per year and there's gun violence mm -hmm. and all the rest of it. And um, we have risks, but we also manage those risks by by studying our craft, by knowing our boat's safe, yeah. by looking at weather and making smart choices. I think a takeaway mm. for podcast listeners um, that uh, is important to me to share is that if they have this thought, they have this concept of a dream to go cruising to take off whether it's solo or with a partner or with a family um to be really cautious about who they share those plans with and know that they're going to have that negative judgment um and and as you test the waters of running that plan by people in their circle um those who really have the negative reaction you know what you that's now that's just kind of an area you don't go into with them anymore because their negativity even if they love you and it's well intended um, if they're going to focus on asking negative questions based on their lack of understanding, pirates, they, storms, <laughs> and they can't just mm -hmm. celebrate the fact that because that they could trust you, that this is a good thing you're going to do, maybe shelve those conversations with them and just focus on, you know, what, what tennis matches next week or whatever. Um, yeah. and with the friends who are, who are like, I don't get it, but that's awesome. You go. I can't wait to visit yeah, well, you somewhere. Okay, they're the yeah, ones that you go to the pub with and stuff. I think that what being is what being touched on earlier, which is fascinating, which was you you were saying that really it's the people who um, are making. You're not judging them, and they're not really judging you either. What they're doing is they're judging themselves, kind of via you. You know, they've projected their lack of get up and go, and they kind of wish they had had this. They probably have got a dream. And they wish they had the kind of nerve to act it out, which is really fascinating. I, well, they may have gone to a lot of well, effort well, to set up a perfect life by living in the right yeah, place yeah. and sending their kids to the right schools. And you're suddenly, through your choice, implying that maybe that's not actually a really... Right. Well, right. You're, 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 you've re you've reject you have rejected that, haven't you? And mm -hmm. you've, you've said, actually, yeah, we understand that. We lived in that lifestyle. Um, and yeah, no, we're not going to. So... Mm -hmm. That's obviously uh, a criticism uh, implied, whether you say it or you don't, it's an implied criticism of how other people who are staying in that system live. But in particular, it seems to me, of course, you have quite a strong um, social media presence. And as I have <laughs> fairly recently exposed myself to some, um, you know, media... Uh, social media uh, criticisms and stuff and I must confess to being completely amazed by the kind of things that people come out with uh, it's clearly it's clearly meant not really necessarily as a criticism of you it's meant to demonstrate just how clever and how um, much more intelligent they are than you are and you and generally they're wrong and you know, that's not because I think I'm smarter than them, but the fact that they're trying so hard to undermine what you're doing shows a, a lack in their own lives, I think. But 
when you're in the situation that you're in, your head above the pulpit so far, I'm guessing you must have had a lot of people telling you, oh, you know, just incredibly selfish. And, oh, you know, you're not even thinking of your children. This is all about you. You must have had that, Very surely. much so. I remember the first time we experienced this in a big way. We had just arrived in uh, this one part of Malaysia, and uh, a, a columnist for the New York Times um, had tweeted having heard about us and said, I just learned about this family that's been sailing around the world for at that time, six or seven years or whatever. And he's on the editorial board. He's very... Um, he's a Pulitzer Prize winning yeah. columnist. But he tweeted about it. A tweet. A little tiny couple of couple of words strung together. And there were, I forget how many tens of thousands of the comments. Venom. And people were just horribly nasty. Venom. Oh, oh they're selfish. They're ruining their kids. These worst people parents are, ever. Oh, they're just on a death tour. And, and it's like... Uh, ruining their kids' and, lives. And some of our friends then went on and they were trying to defend us against <laughs> we're it. We're like, you know, yeah, don't, it's okay, thanks. <laughs> it doesn't matter. They, they will never get it and that's okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's a relief to know that it's just as bad in America as it is in the UK. But I was staff on Yachty Monthly when um, the, uh, the the advent of online stuff happened and we had, we had a thing called Scuttlebutt on Yachty Monthly. Uh, and, you know, no one ever went on there to say what a great magazine we produced. Right. Yes. <laughs> it was always attacking us. And the editor was beside himself, he, Paul Gelder then. He said, no, nope, no longer with us. He said, I can't understand. I said, Paul, don't read it. If you don't, I said, I love reading. I think it's great. He said, well, why, why? I said, because it's fascinating to just see how warped they are. It's true. And of course, they're all hiding behind these monikers anyway, so nobody really knows who they are. Yeah, I mean, Dick, I think, I think, oh, goodness, you know, let me just say, I think it's right that people are concerned and considering from their own viewpoints what's right and what's wrong. So I think whether somebody, you know, and I'd like to say, reach out to the listeners that we've got listening to this and say, you know, you, you may well have a different viewpoint, but hear both sides and understand both sides of the argument before you come to a determination. I'm just also going to say one other thing. Hasn't this last 12 months of this astonishing change to the world proven to us that actually not only must should there be a, a, a different way, but there must be different ways. And I think, you know, that's what I'm sure I haven't asked you the question, but I, I'm taking it as read that your children are very, very aware about the um, effect of uh, their carbon footprint on the world and, and living in a symbiotic way with with the world and, and its its full natural state. And that in itself is going to stand them in fantastic stead, isn't it, in the future? They'll have had an experience that other children might have had to read about, may agree with, but they will have seen it firsthand. That's uh, powerful, I think. Those, those firsthand experiences are incredibly powerful, and it's where a lot of real learning occurs. And a lot of both, you know, what you refer to, um, uh, their sensitivity to living with a light footprint, to, um, to our impact on the planet. Um, but also so much their sensitivity to uh, that, you know, we're, we're one human race as opposed to a whole bunch of camps and everyone has um, a future that they'd like to fulfill and, and that we're, I guess, able to help them grow up as citizens of the world instead of citizen, citizens of some very privileged little camp um, in their home country. With, with a bias and an agenda, it's, it's so hard in the U.S. that environmentalism and, and concern for your footprint is a political issue that is marketed to and twisted and tormented um, these outcomes with people's beliefs that are crazy. And to then go and have the opportunities that we've had to see how people live and to be in island nations that are literally underwater and eroding away and sinking and to, to be in a remote atoll in the middle of the Pacific and it's piled with plastic garbage. No, and to see um, the loss of, of, of fish life. You're in a, this pristine place and the coral is dead and there's no fish. Um, these aren't, these aren't um, 
theoretical scenarios. This stuff is real and it's now. And when experiencing it instead mm. of reading in a book really impresses it in a different way. But um, to, to go back to kind of where you started with this is what with what's happened in the last uh, year with the coronavirus and how the pandemic has affected all of us. One of the things that the cruising life has really instilled in all of us is uh, resilience. And we've seen how well that served our son when he migrated to go to college, um, that he was adaptable. This was a new country, a new culture, new food, you know, we did, that on, do. we did that on a regular basis and college was the next one. The hard part was that it was supposed to be that's his home. That's very, that's very interesting, Bian, mm -hmm. you know, um, yeah, you, I, I don't think people will consider that, that they will perhaps see um, Niall as having a dreadful confrontation to move from the life that he's been living on the boat to suddenly organise life in a university or in a college. But what you're what you're saying, I think what you're saying is, well, they, they've seen so much change that, hey, it's just a yeah, different place, different people, but that's same, same. Change is a constant. Change is a constant. Is that, is that what you're meaning? Yeah. 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 It is a constant. And yeah. as travellers, you face this on a daily basis and you mm -hmm. learn how to read a situation you need to figure out where the grocery store is or where this place is and and talk to people and it's the same that he's experienced there really he's taken it that way where some of his classmates and i think it's not so uncommon for them to move out of their town to a new place new don't know anybody and 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 struggle with that experience mm. um where yeah from a cruising background it's just a new anchorage and the other thing is, as, I, is. as I'm talking to you, it occurs to me that really change is almost the vehicle of assimilation, isn't it, really? Because, you know, you have to, you, you go to Papua New Guinea, you, there's a kid there with a saw on his foot, uh, they, they, they don't share the same language, but you have to get on. You're breathing the same air, you're cooking over the same heat, uh, you're assimilating. <laughs> you're not one tribe of V another, even though... <laughs> They all are there, so to speak. No, that's right. You're sharing a moment where there is um, assimilation, where there's a more common understanding. Papua New Guinea is a great theme for today, I think, but a mm -hmm. story from there that um, I'm reminded of is when we first got to Papua New Guinea, there was three generations of fishermen on this one otherwise uninhabited um, island that we were at, and they were taking a break from fishing. And and here we are with this these, this... Um, family and it was a great introduction to Papua New Guinea. We're sitting around a fire one night on a beach in a spectacular place and um, we learn that they're shark fishermen and what they do is they go out and they catch the sharks and they cut the fins off and a Chinese ship comes in once in a while and they sell it and of course we're enlightened westerners <laughs> and we gave them a lecture on well can't you do more with the fish because it's so wasteful and the finning and you're, blah, blah, you're, blah. you're farming to subsist um, you and, know, from your island, so surely people could eat that shark meat. And they look at me and they say, are you stupid? Have you ever tried to wrestle an 18-foot pissed-off shark In into your boat, <laughs> missing its limbs because you just cut them off? And it's like, oh, yeah, good point. And the, and the practical... And this is one of the only ways to get cash to be able to send your kids to school. The, the understanding yeah. that came out of it for us is that the world's a complicated place. They're not the problem in shark finning. They're not doing this in a massive scale. They're pulling in a couple of sharks, and it's it's they a means for them to get cash to put their kids to school. There are no other ways there to do that. Um, this stuff is happening. It's real, and it's really complicated, especially when mm. your total subsistence comes from what exists around this little tiny uh, space that you live in. Our son actually stopped eating mm. seafood because of after seeing so much of the practices and... Um, although in his case, it was attributing it more to the, um, we were seeing commercial pillaging. Um, the local level, you can you can understand that, but they're hungry now, right? And, um, yeah, and, sure. and how that happens. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, one thing that we do also would be good to, we, we haven't touched on, but I'd be interested to hear what your rules, your safety rules on board were for, for your kids, you know? Um, how do you do it? How do you keep an eye on them? It's not easy, is it? It's not. With the kids in particular, um, when they're small, it is especially challenging. And although my my 2020 hindsight is that I think we could have left sooner, that was one of the reasons why we waited. Uh, we'd said we wanted to wait until our youngest was five. 
but that was when we thought we were having two kids instead of three. Anyway, we left when our youngest had just turned four. And it is in those years where those little ones have lots of mobility to get around and don't have common sense and don't necessarily follow your direction. So um, you kind of need eyes in the back of your head. And it's a lot, it's a much bigger burden on parents because of juggling being on watch with kids and being on watch in the boat and the fact that those two things can't really happen at the same time. Um, but in terms of the rules that we have. It, and it is an area where it's easy to um, want to make judgments against other people, but, you know, your boat, your rules. And as long as you're uh, um, doing things that if, if you feel you're safe, that's, I, I guess that's good enough. I don't know. For us, it was that the kids, um, if we're underway, uh, um, they needed to have a life jacket on. If they were going to come up from down below deck. Yeah, if anywhere in the cockpit or on deck, always a life jacket they on. Because none of them were swimmers when we left. Worst parents of the year award, moving on a boat with kids who can't swim, right? And we lived in a place right, with cold right. water, so they never learned to swim. But they did quickly once we got to warm water. Um, if we were not underway, the kids needed life jackets on if they were outside of the cockpit or if there was no other adults on the boat. And these were non-negotiable rules. Uh, early on, uh, when Niall was just a couple of years old, we were on a friend's boat, and he's like, these are my rules and about the life jacket, and Niall sort of pushed back and said, no, I'm going to take my life jacket off and walk around, and picked him up and sort of sat him down aggressively in the cockpit and said, the life jacket goes on, or you go down below. Mm-hmm. And um, and at the time, I remember thinking, oh, that's a little bit harsh. These were our mentors that had circumnavigated and and then realizing you know that this is this is a safety thing and so effectively with us it was um ensuring that the kids always had this but it was early on it was making sure they also tried to we tried to have them understand why we're doing this so it was important to help train them a little bit so life jacket is so you can float and now put it on and go in the water and see you're floating uh, when you can't otherwise and, and, swim. And, and, and that, was the, that was the reason, I think you touched on it, but that was the reason that you decided to wait until uh, Siobhan was four. So, you know, at, at, at two and two and a half, they're kind of bump and go mystery action, aren't they? You know, no matter what you say, they get off in the opposite direction. And, and was that, that was so that, they could you could reason with them a bit and explain that was the hope yes and uh and it generally played out that way because those toddler years are uh it's impossible really but but all all little kids are different and individual and we've seen some two-year-olds that are absolutely insane and i wouldn't want to be out on a boat with them because there's no reasoning um and there's no control and other kids other kids get it siobhan was um she was good in terms of following things we could have left probably a year sooner, Mm -hmm. but there's some individuality there. And important part is that, you know, we stay on the boat when we're intending, when we're hoping to stay on the boat. For us, um, normal day out sailing, if it's easy conditions, we don't wear life jackets. Um, At night, we wear life jackets. If it gets rough, we wear life jackets. And we clip in in the boat. And clipping in, actually using a harness and tether was another great option for our kids if they wanted to be on deck or in the cockpit. Um, and uh, while we're underway, and it was in the tropics, and sometimes those life jackets can be pretty uncomfortable. Harness and tether was great. Leaving the cockpit was only then with an adult uh, as well. I, I think safety is an interesting issue because it's easy to make uh, judgments mm-hmm. or perceive safety devices as, as great solutions because that's the product that's available. And if you dig in deeper, find that oftentimes there are some flaws to it, like tethers, for example. Oftentimes, yeah, people yeah. lead their tethers down the side deck. Now, if you're on passage and you're walking down the side deck with your tether and you trip and fall, your and chance go of going overboard is still very high, and getting dragged along the side of the boat is probably not a mm. great experience. So no. we've changed our tethers um, so that they're led almost centerline, as near to the middle of the boat as possible. So if you yeah, fall, you'll reach the extent of your tether and still be on the boat, which is not. a good feature. Or at least not of your head in the water, yeah. yeah. I did a sailing test with, um, I'm going to name drop here, Sir Robin Knox Johnston, no less, um, oh, wow. some years ago, yeah, to test out these tethers, and exactly that happened. We used a a, a, a dummy that was weighed as what a real person would weigh, roughly, average person, threw it over the side and came to the conclusion, I mean, even no power, just sailing, um, and okay, we were doing about four knots, um, 
you drown mm-hmm. in very quickly mm-hmm. and, yeah. and in a horrible way because you're getting bashed up and it's like sure. a waterboarding event so um yeah. these things how you set them up there there are subtleties to the details that make a huge difference in the outcome there was a i believe it was a french sailor in the mini transit fell overboard was getting dragged along the side of the boat realized that it was not going to end well cut his tether and um, yeah. and the boat ended up sailing on and then rounding up and headquarters saw that the boat's track was weird they sent another competitor out and the guy was rescued uh, unimaginably yeah. um, good yeah. outcome but yeah. but safety gear how you do it is very important and, sure. and, and netting around the side of the boat did you bother with that uh, so did you try that we had it we did have it um on our first boat uh, prior to totem before we went uh, took off cruising but did a lot of local cruising and we really came became quite convinced that it is uh, it provides a false sense of security we saw how quickly the UV even in our higher latitude location degraded that to make it effectively useless uh, what it was good for was keeping toys on board uh, I think fewer toys <laughs> were lost but we really wouldn't want to rely on it to keep a a child or a person on board we so use it with a very heavy grain of salt we did yeah. on totem when the kids are mm-hmm. younger we had weather clubs that mm-hmm. were on the lifeline uh, down mm-hmm. to the rail along the length of the cockpit and i felt those added solid umbrella uh, all a, the way a bit down, of safety right? because it was solidly attached along the bottom you couldn't slip under it and and the concern was is if we're heeled over and bumbling along and and a, and a one of the kids or one of us loses footing and we kind of roll out of the cockpit under conditions where we're not tethered in daytime event that would stop us and since we're in our cockpit most of the time that felt like it was a nice uh, safety addition um, of course UV ate that over time and we've not replaced it uh, but but uh, all the kids are mm-hmm. are exceptional swimmers now and we they are they are and being in warmer waters is good although I, what i miss from that is the sun protection it was good uv protection for us pasty white people that have to watch out for that <laughs> yeah of course it, it, when you're in australia the slip slap slop um mantra is uh, it drove me crazy i understand why because they've got such a significant problem there with uh, you know with uh, skin cancers and stuff but um you know if if you if you're about out there with a with a child without a full suit on like a latex they're not probably latex but whatever they are um you're almost a criminal you know and uh, all of those things you know and of course kids do a dehydrate quicker than much quicker than adults they get sunburnt much quicker so there's quite a lot to be thinking of you've answered quite a lot of questions my daughter knew i was doing this podcast with you today and um, she has uh, a two and a half year old uh, uh, son and also a, a five month old daughter and because of covid they they regularly out on the boat but because of covid um they haven't been able to come out but we're now britain is now trying to sh- uh, uh, shrug off its uh, uh, you know the manacles that we've been living in and and get back out and i'm hoping to be able to get out to turkey and and they we were talking about you know coming out on the boat and she said, oh, you know, what are we going to do now? You know, Leo's two and a half. He's whizzing around all over the place. And you must ask, you must ask the people you're doing this podcast to ask them to tell you exactly what to do. I said, well, <laughs> they won't be able to do that, but they'll, they'll hopefully give us quite a few clues. And you have. So that's brilliant. Thank you. Excellent. Oh, glad to, glad to help. It's certainly um, a frustrating time. And I think the one thing we didn't mention that I think would be really important um, for her is to be able to have a way she knows she can secure her toddler for those occasions when she and her husband both have to be hands on because it happens and you need to be able to do that because you cannot take care of the boat and take care of a, a toddler who has who's willful at the same time yeah we've got gaffer type is that what yeah. you're thinking of? <laughs> something like you know a velcro, a velcro suit. suit kind of toss them on the bulkhead we think you know that's <laughs> another good one um so how do you how do you mean how uh, how do you mean a, a, a child seat with a harness that it can't get out of like a car seat really? actually installing a car seat in the cockpit is a technique used by many sailing yeah parents. when when they're uh, very young oh, that's a good, good one idea. and yeah. when they're a little bit older 
the video babysitter can be awesome because when you have to dock the boat and you really need both people mm-hmm. focusing on that, you can't pause and say, yeah. okay, Junior, stop you know, bickering. I don't care if you're hungry. We have to do this thing now. We had a place we called, and I'm not proud, uh, we called it Baby Jail and for when they were very small, um, but starting <laughs> to get mobile and rolling around and things. And it was essentially a cutout. This is in our old Hallberg Rossi 352, and it was a cutout on the settee and the starboard side to be able to make it like another berth. But it was a perfect place. You could actually kind of stuff a, a, a small child in there um, and have a, a pillow to prevent them from rolling out. So they're in there, and they might not be happy about it, but we could both go and dock and know the kid would be there when we were finished. Yeah, I mean, it's right, isn't it? You know, of course, children do always, you know, demand attention and certainly are very vocal about it when they want attention. But, of course, you know, when you're coming in, to moor the boat in a marina or something else has occurred um unfortunately you, you've got to concentrate on the boat and, and that's going to provide the best safety for for the child as well because you're looking after the boat and it is a worry i sailed with my son when he was one pr- practically one of us which was my wife generally was always uh, incapacitated needing to sit and and hold our son until he became of an age where you could um you know explain to him exactly what he needed to do so that he could ignore that instruction properly you know <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. they also have their uses uh, i remember my eldest daughter now who's got t- two children herself but when she was a tiny girl of about two or three i suppose i had a very old boat and i dropped um a, an adjustable spanner down through the lazarette into the bilge and I tried every way to get at it and I couldn't <laughs> and I said Katie I'm just going to lower you down into this <laughs> hole <laughs> on this rope I if love you can it. just put your hand <laughs> yes <laughs> and she she got it back for me <laughs> right I've well, never told her mother you know they can sometimes <laughs> yeah, reach into little spaces well perhaps now she'll know um, yeah I, and, and along that theme actually we discovered this is our first year out and we're in uh, cruising in coastal Mexico, and often fishermen here will use buoys on their fishing nets, which which are very difficult to see. They'll repurpose like a, a two-liter uh, soda pop bottle, and unless, you know, even if that's got a colored tint to it, it's very hard to see bobbing on, on the ocean when there's any, any kind of sea state. Our four-year-old could see them, and she pointed one ah. out to us while we were in the cockpit sailing along wow. just as we were approaching and may have uh, run into some problems getting tangled up in it. And so, boy, she lived up there in the cockpit with us to help with net spotting, with buoy spotting uh, for the rest of that afternoon. It was honestly a great early lesson for us that um, kids can be valuable resources on the boat because Mm -hmm. their sound, their their hearing is better, their eyesight is better. Mm -hmm. And these are good resources as a sailor to help make decisions. They have in other situations uh, saved us from uh, some calamities, really, because of that. And not just being able to spot the buoys, but hearing there's a sound that's not quite right. And it turned out, you know, we were... Uh, the pump is running. The freshwater uh, pressure pump is running, oh, and you know yeah, there's been a leak. And yeah, we were uh, going to drain uh, our uh, tank. Yeah, yeah. As yeah. you're as you're telling us that, it's occurred to me to ask you a question. At at what age did your children and did they all at various times um, do a watch alone? So, Almost never. I mean, obviously, Niall's now an adult and, and has been for quite some time. Um, and uh, Meryn is also she's nineteen, isn't she? Mm-hmm. She is. So so and and uh, Siobhan is now seventeen. I imagine they they must have they must be very competent yachts people, and you must do you or don't you? So they are quite competent now, but um, I we've been fairly adamant as children that they would not stand watch alone and. There is a point, and this is where every kid is different, and you will know as a parent when you're when it may be appropriate for your kid for them to uh, participate in watches. They could pa- partner with us on watches from from the very youngest age, honestly. Um, but uh, but to be solo is is a huge responsibility, and our, my concern with mm. this is um, comes from our concern with this comes from the fact that we have seen teenagers whose brains are just not yet fully formed, who may have good intentions to stand watch, miss something, and a, a boat was lost. Another boat uh, was wrecked and a parent lost their leg while teenagers were on watch. Teenagers who had all the right yeah. training and intentions and boat experience. Yeah. That's a huge weight and burden to have. There's a so, so not, a, yeah. so not yeah. at all? Well, so they would stand watch during the daytime 
when one of us was was maybe up there and then down cooking a meal, but back and forth. But they were on watch for that period of time yeah. as teenagers. Now, at some point, um, uh, Niall was fully on watch himself, and then and then he's done night watches and, uh, as well. But but not until he was probably around eighteen, seventeen, eighteen, were mm-hmm. we doing that yes. because because before then. And other people have different um, approaches in this, and that's fine. But we know of these stories of of teenagers on watch, making poor choices, drifting uh, their attention, and the boat ends up in a tragic situation. And these kids mm. then have to live with that for the rest of their their lives. And it's not to say that kids can't be relied on and trusted, because we get into an anchorage and we're going to go into buy groceries or check in with the port captain and we would tell the kids okay you know you're you're effectively on watch even though we're anchored and you got to pay attention if a squall comes you know what to do and they'd be like yeah we know hold station if we started to drag and blah 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 and um so we trust them with responsibility but over a four-hour period in the middle of the night when you're going around an island or squalls can come and ruin the day um we feel like we're reluctant for those reasons yeah Mm. I, I I knew I had well I, I won't say he was a friend but I knew a guy and he was sailing him and his wife and two kids and uh, and he told me most proudly that that his son uh, did a full night watch at the age of thirteen and I'll be honest I was bloody horrified <laughs> I just thought that was absolutely mental but you know obviously and everybody matures at a different rate all adults you know all children become um, more mature at uh, uh, or less mature at certain times and and I was, that's why I asked the question you know 17 18 you know you, I could un, I can understand that and that's you know would be my thinking but then that's how it worked for you eh? And that, that's right and every child is different so when they've got that maturity and that the sense of responsibility then then increasing amount of time and standing watch is fine. The, the, the flip side for us is that when the kids were really very young, we also had safety talks with them because... Like um, a crew briefing. Yeah, ignoring that mm-hmm. there could be safety situations where they need to take an action just because they're four or five years old is, is I think, the wrong approach. And so... Yeah, they're very we, much treated as members of the crew. We don't... They're not kind of mollycoddled in, in the sense. And early on, we would say, okay, you have to practice now. You have to put this harness on and take it off and put it on take it off so that you could do this... Now do it with ...in your the dark <laughs> really quickly if you had to. Mm-hmm. And we would practice... Mm-hmm. Um, we would do scavenger hunts to find all of the locations of the fire extinguishers on board or whatever, yeah. right? Uh, How quickly uh, can yeah, we get to the fire extinguishers and turn it over to make sure you hear that the powder's not packed down? It's still good. And practicing um, where the handholds on the boat. So if you're on deck and we had to do something, you can you can handhold your way across yeah, blind, in the dark. Blindfold, um, you know, uh, parent not blindfolded watching. But now let's go from the cockpit to the bow and back again and feel your way there. Get to know the hmm. physical landscape of that boat in case you had to do it under a difficult But with kids, you have to do it as a fun thing. You can't it can't yep. be a scary scenario. OK, if we're sinking, you got to do this or whatever. But these are easy to gamify, right? <laughs> I'd, I'd like to ask a couple of mundane questions. Uh, well, perhaps they're mundane, but I, I can reckon that so many people that will be listening to this will be wanting to know the answer. I've heard um, and been told lots of ludicrous stories about the cost of going off cruising. Um, the common one is uh, that it costs you 10% uh, of the boat's value to maintain the boat, let alone live in. Um, and I've that's complete rubbish. And can you put a figure on what you need to earn to subsist as a family and, and not be on the breadline? So I think that um, that's such a hard question to answer. And it is it is kind of what everyone wants to know. Mm. Like, what is it? What do you need to live on every year? Um, and I think it is impossible to put a, um, a rule of thumb figure on that because we just see people living at such wildly different budgets and i think we, you kind of spend what you have and um, you could try to you could try to come up with a minimum but then someone who could never live to that minimum takes that as gospel thinks that's enough and goes out and completely you know uh, mm. completely fails it's no no i'm i'm in for you really for oh, you for us? guys you oh know, yeah that's easy so we've got we've got data on that and it's something that we go we use in our coaching practice with people uh, not because our numbers are going to be their numbers but because we use it to 
give them a framework to try to estimate what their budget would look like based on their habits and their boat and their geography and things like that. We spend uh, for long-term average about $35,000 a year as it's a family actually, of five. Frightening consistency that thirty five thousand for us um, over time. When very it, little. When it's broken has been in the last two years. Two years ago, uh, where we spent like an extra, an additional probably I think thirty k. Actually, it's even more. I still have to put some numbers in that because we were replacing rigging, uh, replacing hatches. We did a ton a of new, work on totem. Yeah, after thirteen yeah. years of cruising, you kind of wear bits of the boat out, yeah. and so, so so I totally agree that the ten percent. Rule is a dumb rule. Well, it doesn't yeah, make sense for maintenance. However, th there's this sort of cyclical um, uh, picture, really, that is... Where you really spike in some years and spend so much yeah, more. It's seven. I think it's seven years. Did you say seven years? So that was our first big uh, haul out. Yeah, Lucky yeah. seven, when all the money leaves your pocket. <laughs> yeah. And, and now... And then last year for oh, COVID, yeah. we spent only about $26,000 US, as opposed to... our like Literally every year since we started tracking before that, we're... 35000 plus or minus a few hundred dollars. Like, we don't try. It's just kind of apparently what we live to. Yeah, you wouldn't get so far on that in Australia, mind you. Yeah, no, no, not so yeah. far. No, no, about no six weeks or something. Yeah. And this year will be a bigger year for us because we're we're just starting into a repowering. Uh, our engine is um, end of life mm -hmm. at this point, which is unfortunate. We're going to do a hull paint job. Uh, we've got some cabin work we're going to do, so it'll be a bigger year for us. Our stove is dying. The stove we put in in 2008 um, needs enough bits replaced and has enough corrosion that we're, it, you know, it's time yeah. to swap it out. Chain is worn out. I, I, must re I, must, I, must, I must remember to send you the uh, full specification of a crack and fix. <laughs> yes, you must. <laughs> Please do. Please do. We'll, yeah. we'll wipe a little tear as it we really look is. at our bank account, but uh, actually that'd be cool. <laughs> Fr friends and family discount? Um, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure we can work totally something out. Yeah. yeah. Was there was there any was there anything that you um, gave up in order to do this? Did you stop drinking, stop smoking? Or have you have you kind of denied yourself anything? The, the one thing that it. we've denied oh, ourselves was um, was extra travel from the boat. We've done this only on a few occasions. Ah, yes. The, but inland travel right, to go flying. see a tourist destination. In some right. places, we did not do that, or we never traveled home. Because flying five people to the U.S. from Southeast Asia is a lot of money. Um, right. But that said, we did also save money for places where you can't miss the local um, the, the local tourist experience. Right, you can't go to South Africa and not go into the game parks or Sri and Lanka. see the animals. Right. Yeah, course. you can't go to Sri Lanka and to miss some of the incredible history, like you know, Sigaria and some of some of the old uh, some of the relics that are there to see, which are you just walk up and walk around and touch. It's incredible. So the Temple of the Tooth in in Candy and that yes. sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah, the Temple of the Tooth yeah. to experiences upon experiences that we often didn't do, um, but but selectively did. And before departure, the things that we stopped um, doing, I guess, to try to save, or the things that changed, I guess, um, between depart um, our life before and our life as cruisers, also was eating out in restaurants. We almost right. exclusively uh, prepare all of our meals on the boat. The exception would be when we're in a place that's actually very inexpensive to eat on shore. Oh. Mexico is a great example of that. In Thailand, Brilliant. I'm pretty sure we could eat more cheaply on Indonesia. shore. Indonesia, Indonesia yeah. was brilliant for that. Um, but well, when you make it up, when you make it up the Thames, okay, and you come to London, I will take you out for dinner myself. Oh, uh, thank you, Dave. Look forward to it. Goals. <laughs> one of one of the things. Just just let's come back into one thing. Just tell us a little bit about uh, your book and and your target audience and the people that are contacting you uh, and and the service that you give them. You know who is it that's and how do they get hold of you to get the kind of advice that you can give them? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, the book is kind of where we got started in some ways um, around the time we were hauled out in Thailand doing that one of those big bigger refits, the seven year cycle. Um, I worked on co-authoring a book with two other cruising parents called Voyaging with Kids. And we did that because uh, as Jamie and I were preparing to go cruising, there were plenty of resources for us to look at preparing how to go cruise, but there were none which applied the parent filter. And we really feel that the more people that can get out and go cruising, kind of the better for everyone. Um, bigger worldviews for the folks that go um, and just an incredible opportunity for families to be uh, strengthened and improved by the experience. So this book is intended to 
uh, not be a, a, a standalone cruising guide, how to go cruising guide per se, but to fill in all those blanks with the questions that parents would have from getting started to dealing with the resistance that parent, the grandparents and relatives may have um, to their own questions. Our last chapter is a collection of essays by former cruising kids talking about how that it affected them as adults to have this experience of cruising oh, as a kid. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and we wanted also to have a diverse point of view. There have been a, a handful of other books uh, by cruising families in the past, but they tended to only reflect that boat, that family's experience, and not a broader experience. So we brought in uh, probably, gosh, more than 70 different families, whether it was through interviews, surveys, sidebars, to try to reflect the breadth of what's out here to help people think about what their path into cruising might be like. So, so that's Voyaging with Kids. Um, and it earns us kind of nothing. I mean, there's the royalties like our <laughs> coffee budget. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> it's not why it's not why I put the time into that. It really is to help more people get out there, which is kind of what our cruising service uh, evolved from in a sense, because as more and more people started coming to us with questions about how do you do this? How can I do this, you know, with my partner, with my family? Um, we started spending a lot of time answering questions that came in off the internet as our writing got more popular. And putting a ton of time in um, and sometimes never hearing back, we were sort of like, well, maybe there's a better way to do this. And it was in 2016 when we were back in the U.S. for the first time in about nine years that we uh, sat down and organized what a framework for a coaching service would look like. Um, we've now helped, what, 260-some? 68, I think. Wow. Okay. So Families. Yep. Uh, mostly wow. families um, to go cruising. And that's that a really meant. powerful feeling. Um, it began that as is. a way to help folks get ready to go cruising. It has evolved into we're actually supporting a lot of people in the early stages of their cruising as they're getting their feet under them and getting comfortable with everything mm. from international clearance to real world weather. Jamie does a lot of weather routing support um, to bigger picture routing and what, you know, where can we go this season? The things that we can talk about before they go, but which are suddenly very real when you're living them at sea level. And a, and a lot in between. There's a lot of pitfalls when you're first on your boat about um, with the family spending too much time trying to make the boat perfect and have all the right gear and everything and completely ignoring your kids in the process. Your kids are in this new place in an unfamiliar boat and setting, mm -hmm. and they're like, uh, this is no fun. I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> and so we talk about the happiness engineer, making mm -hmm. sure that you build in fun to every single day because it's important that they enjoy this or else it's going to be a short cruising career. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's, it's helping people avoid those pitfalls. Mm -hmm. And then uh, oh, okay. the other work that we do to support ourselves uh, out here now, which it, actually I still kind of can't believe it, that we're able to continue this lifestyle by helping other people get out there and enjoy it too. Because we, we just, we think it's pretty awesome. Um, is that Jamie went back to his roots as a sailmaker. Uh, when I met him, that's what he'd been doing for a number of years uh, at a very elite level. And, uh, and he got a little burned out, took a break from sailmaking when we moved to the U.S. West Coast got back into it as a cruiser mm -hmm. and uh it was it, it took a while to dust off the uh the old sail making cap but um you spend enough time on passage staring at sails and it's like okay yes I, I i remember all this and get into sailcloth more and and details and um and then it was going further and 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 learning what makes good cruising sails and so it's been fun to pick that up again and help uh help other sailors get some good good product good um, better use out of their sails and their boats and you, there have been times, Jamie. I think you, you you've mentioned to us um, before that uh, there have been people you've had to dissuade from doing this. Um, perhaps you can yeah, that's right. So us on that a bit um, with the advent of YouTube and um, more social media that has uh, reached out and kind of pulled people in that didn't have a sailing background. It's it's right. great for the Which marine is, industry. Well, and it's awesome that people are considering alternative ways of life, that social media has helped normalize a lot of this and make it look accessible. That's a win. Right. So with coaching, some people but... come to us with no experience, and you can tell they'll do fine. They've got mechanical aptitude. They've traveled. All these combination of things, you can tell they'll, they'll work it out. Mm -hmm. We just need to develop those sailing skills. 
um, and and make it make mm-hmm. it uh, make sense. And then there's other people that reach us with ideas that just aren't really aligned. They, they, they watch, you know, too many YouTube channels and not rooted in reality. It's more the, the glamour shots on the beach with the, the umbrella drinks and things like that. And And they're not keen to get really hands on with, you know, in the engine or whatever it is, or there may be very misaligned in terms of expectations on cost. There is an unfortunate, um, I think, uh, perception that cruising can be incredibly inexpensive. And while it can be done very frugally, especially compared to life on land, it does still take money. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I, I massively agree mm-hmm. with that. I, I, I've i met a lot of people that are doing, you know, sailing around the world on an extremely low budget. And I would also say, unfortunately, one of the reputations that world cruising yachties have is that they give out the perception that the rest of the world has got to pay for them uh, to be cruising around and and you know everybody's got to do everything for them for nothing whereas of course everybody's really just trying to earn a living as well i bet you've had a fair bit of that <laughs> as a, a sailmaker <laughs> as soon as there's been a decent crossing just you know under your belt and there's a group of yachties i would think that there's plenty of people rowing over and asking you ah look i've just is that or an electrician <laughs> if you were an electrician as well you'd i think you'd have no time to go sailing you'd all be staying in the anchorage fixing everybody's boat for them oh it's so, true well, sort of. I mean, working working while you cruise is actually a really complicated topic because um, we don't have legal authority to work in in countries overwhelmingly, right? I mean, yeah. to go through the process of legally working in Australia was actually a really significant process. My employer had to do a bunch of paperwork, hire a lawyer, pay fees. I had to fit in a very narrow definition of what was an okay person to hire. So we're, we're super cautious about that. And where our work is all virtual, it's done through the internet with people around. Um, Jamie doesn't do repairs or make sales on our boat. Those are everything is done elsewhere, and he's consulting remotely. So, in a way, that's um, what the the YouTube generation is doing too. They're creating yes. a product to sell, and we're creating products to sell. And I think that's kind of the um, the opportunity for a lot of folks to figure out what's their thing that they can do that uh, allows them to. Um, maintain a legal presence. And I think legacy cruisers give the impression that you could just show up and, and work for yachties or work in harbors and ports. And and it's just not like that. No, no, I very much agree. It, you'll run into a hell of a lot of trouble if you try. That's right, you it. can in some places. But there's still, as you, to your point, there's no shortage of people after a passage that'll oh, yeah. <laughs> come over and say, I hear you're a sailmaker and can I you hear just you're look a rigger. At this thing and and, and uh, yeah, yeah, I'll come over and. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and lend a hand, but it's those well, aren't really money-making opportunities. Yeah, it, that's just kind of like cruiser karma stuff, yeah. right? I mean, we all help each other out out here all the time. I think uh, perhaps we might be reaching a conclusion. Um, we've been talking to you for Lots two hours. It's a long time. <laughs> um, so I would like to uh, just ask you finally, if I may, the plans next for you. I think you're talking about Northern Pacific, if COVID allowing, is that it? COVID allowing, yes, we are really looking forward to striking out from North American continent and heading back to the Pacific. Um, the path for that probably looks like South Pacific first and then maybe North Pacific for cyclone season just to flip hemispheres. Um, but it know. really will be driven by uh, by COVID and, and how things have progressed. And um, although okay. some portions of the Pacific have been reopening, there's still very much a question mark in our minds uh, particularly for the smaller vulnerable islands where vaccine rollout is relatively slow. I think they're, right, right. they're being especially okay. cautious. Kiribati locked down in January last year. I mean, they were among the first, and there is no one going in there. Tuvalu, no, no. Marshall Islands. It's interesting, you know, F- Fiji, Fiji's open. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so Fiji's a really this, great model. This- um, and what they've done in creating what they call the blue lane is brilliant. Um, I actually don't think it's a good assumption that seven or eight days of of time at sea is a way of saying you won't have COVID. You can still very much because pass it among pass, a crew, yeah. be asymptomatic, mm-hmm. and show up with an active case on board. But Fiji has still created processes for testing at each end um, and quarantine on arrival. Uh, and there's a whole lot of cost associated with that, of course. For our crew, for example, 
Um, it would cost more to enter Fiji today, uh, arriving from, say, French Polynesia, uh, our likely probable prior port, um, than it would for us to go to the Galapagos, which is sort of famously expensive for all of its permits and fees. So, mm, like, wow. you know, a, a chunk mm. more to enter Fiji. So, yes, possible. Manage brilliantly. I wish more um, Pacific nations would follow the lead of Fiji, even for the inconveniences and costs to allow you know, because they, they call it a blue lane, but it's not. It's like it's a blue stop. There's nowhere to go from there at this point unless mm, you're able mm. to write the check to quarantine yourself in a government-run uh, uh, facility in Australia or want to roll the dice and go into Southeast Asia, which is a very big roll of the dice and a really long distance. One positive note mm. uh, for all the horror that COVID has caused, um, and I think it's caused a lot of people to reevaluate. We touched on this earlier, just the, the, the meaning of their life and there are so many people now that actively want to go cruising or to mm -hmm. travel. The marine industry has been booming. The people that we work with, people are coming from all over the place. We're, we're working like 15 We've hours a day helping get people onto a boat and to go cruising, even if it's restricted because of COVID, but they're getting out some to experience so, life. For example, a family in Australia who was able to, you have to get permission to leave Australia, right? But... Um, they wrote their application to get permission. We helped them with the remote purchase of a boat in the U.S., uh, getting that boat ready to go. And they're now actually, they cruise through the Bahamas and they're in the Dominican Republic having a blast, Absolute, mind you. Like, absolutely. Yeah, there are complications for traveling in the Caribbean under COVID as well. And you've got to know what to do before you show up somewhere. But it is, it's still doable. In, in it's just another complication, is it? I mean, you, you'll know. <laughs> I was very very surprised but that's what you get nowadays i mean right. you, you're still able to travel the world just pre-arrival you homework. do have to be aware of, of what um the legislation and the various customs and immigration rules are but yeah i mean and covid's just added another layer on top of it that we've got to think about but it is still all doable it's you know you've got obviously change your venues and change your timing to some extent um, but it, it is still it is still doable, and there's still you know now people are getting itchy to get back out and go sailing again, aren't they? But there you go. Anyway, look, I guess I guess as Dick said uh, four or five conversations ago, um, <laughs> we've covered we've covered a monster amount of ground and a lot of common interests. It's been very very good talking to you, and thanks very much for your time and your insights. Truly, our pleasure. Thank you very much for having us. We love being able to share stories. It's really fun to see the common stories, the common ground that we've got, um, and, uh, and hopefully uh, inspire a few more people to think about going cruising. Thanks very much to Bian and Jamie. That was an incredibly interesting uh, discussion. Um, we very much appreciated. They've opened their hearts to us and, and told us the story walks and all. Um, and Bian and Jamie have also invited uh, any of the listeners that uh, are you know, considering any of the issues with their children and sailing off, um, to be in touch with them via their uh, website, uh, and uh, they'll be very happy to exchange information. So uh, that's uh, fantastic stuff. And uh, Dickie, what's uh, what's next in Ocean Sailor then? Well, what's in the next uh, Ocean Sailor? I think a lot of good material. Uh, there's a we've done quite an in-depth look at tenders, types of tenders, and how you should. Uh, take them with you, tow them or have them in davits. Uh, that's one quite big long feature. We've also looked, uh, we've also been speaking to Graham Wilding and he's got a really interesting insight into Fiji, especially during COVID. Uh, but uh, the big story really is, of course, uh, the launch of the new K-50, Dick. I think you can tell us a bit about that. Yeah, I certainly can. Uh, just before we come off of uh, the point of, with uh, Graham Wilding, Ding, as I know him to be, that is it. It was in Fiji that I first uh, first met Ding. We anchored in the same bay, and I swam across, and he offered me to climb aboard and uh, and proffered a beer, which I wasn't able to resist. He's a good guy, and he's he's done some very interesting stuff. The big story, as you say, Dick, is uh, the launch of uh, Sophie Marie uh, Kraken Fifty Version Two. Uh, 003 is the hull model it's gone astonishingly well i mean you will always 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 worry about these things um she hit the waterline dead right 
the boat is absolutely superb and uh, we're carrying a big article uh, this month uh, in Ocean Sailor about the launch and there's video that people can see uh, as well on the various social media outlets. So um, I do hope that people will have a look at it. We're extremely proud of what we've done. But also, Dickie, haven't you, um, didn't you, or were you going to do something about Gypsy Moth? Because I, you, you, I know you sailed on her. Yes, indeed, I, I, I did, uh, and I have. Um, I've described Gypsy Moth 4 uh, as the world's most famous yacht. I mean, that's an, <laughs> arguably so, as she certainly was at one time, because she was the first small craft to sail with only one stop single-handed around the world mm. at the helm, of course, was Francis Chichester. Then she was incarcerated at Greenwich alongside the Cutty Sark for about 30-odd years. Yeah, I, I, Dickie, I saw... I, I, when I was, how long ago was that she was there? It's 1966-67 that Chichester made his circumnavigation. Yeah, was it yeah. really? Yeah, because I, I did go and see her when, uh, when she was up at Greenwich. Yes. And uh, it, it looked strangely small uh, 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 next to the Cutty Sark and, it, it, and very yes. vulnerable, but a beautiful boat even then. Well, you're right. I, I mean, she, she looks small against the Cutty Sark, but I think she looks small anyway. Um, I mean, she, uh, the, the kind of position I took on considering the boat was really, was she a real classic or was she a crank? Because she was a difficult boat to sail, she was finished in a rush because Chichester was was eager to get going. In fact, before Sir Alec Rose uh, set off to make his circumnavigation, Chichester wanted to be the first, and that's the story behind the story, if you like. Mm. So, Gypsy Moth Four was was built in a rush. She's she didn't have enough I, I beam. Did, Dick, I, I don't think I don't think people know that, do they? I, no, I, well, I certainly will, wasn't do. aware of it. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, they will do. Well, I mean... Alec Rose uh, was in Lively Lady, wasn't he? That he was, was indeed. Yeah, yeah. Yes, mm, he was. Mm. Uh, the, the sailing grocer from uh, Southsea. Um, and everybody... He was... Because Chichester being the first got the limelight, but it would have been, in fact, <laughs> Sir Alec Rose because he set off before Chichester, but he had a gear failure and had to put into somewhere on the south coast um, knowing this, Chichester then raced ahead and put pressure on the team to get his boat finished, and he set off, and of course he then did become the first. Uh, but uh, I mean, interesting. Yeah, interesting. yeah, it is. He, he, um, and then of course, Yachting Monthly had a campaign to get the boat restored, rebuilt, and taken around the world again. This time, obviously, not going via the five capes, Cape Horn, uh, and uh, the uh, you know the Cape mm. of Storms that you went round. Uh, off uh, South Africa and the others, but instead, of course, the more easygoing cruising route. And so she was rebuilt. She was taken around the world again, and this was to celebrate both the centenary of Yachting Monthly and also 40 years to the day that Chichester uh, came back to Plymouth. And so we did do that, and I was on a couple of the legs. So I thought it was time to have a have a look back on this uh, to discover or to ask the questions was, Gypsy Moth, really fit for purpose? And you can find out the answer in Ocean Sailor. Well, I guess she made it, so she must have been, eh? <laughs> yes, indeed, she did. And so that the answer is probably yes, but there's quite a lot of things that happened en route which, uh, <laughs> which might have made you want a slightly different boat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah fair enough. Well, that'll make interesting reading. The other thing uh, that I'm going to do in, the, in this month, I'm just about to write it now, uh, is um, one of my, I, 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 I've, it's become a bit of a cliche now. I, I've been asked many times, you know, what do I like best, diving, sailing or fishing? And my answer is that my perfect day is fishing while I'm sailing to a dive spot. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so uh, fishing is a very big part of uh, what we do on White Dragon and what I did on Moonshadow because we're pretty self-sustaining. Uh, Almost anywhere in the world, perhaps except the Mediterranean, where you, you could starve to death if you're waiting to catch a fish while you're sailing there. Um, but I, So I'm going to do an article about uh, sailing while you're fishing and the various techniques and uh, some of the things I've learnt uh, over the years. Well, that will be interesting. I've got a question there for you, Dick, because I was told a long time ago, don't know how true this is, but um, that many of the fish in the Mediterranean uh, are known... <laughs> 
<laughs> as thermometer fish because they're full of mercury. I don't know how true that is. Well, I, I think it's unlikely that anybody will ever find out because I can tell you, <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> having sailed right the way across the Med from Gibraltar right the way to Turkey, I had one take the whole way. Really? One Brief. take, yeah, and that was almost yeah, yeah. in Turkey. Turkey, there's still a few uh, fish left. But, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, well, I think that's a bit of, I, I, I think it's a little bit of a myth. Um, yeah. But undoubtedly, you know, the more uh, that's being discovered about the state of our seas, unfortunately, the more it's, it's being exposed of how much we've abused the seas. So, yeah, you know, there probably is some truth to it. Of course, the big thing as well at the moment is microplastics and, and, yeah. and them being consumed in fish. So, you know, it's a... Uh, but nonetheless, plastic or no plastic, mercury or no mercury, uh, I think a good fresh tuna can do you an awful lot of good, especially sashimi. <laughs> Fair enough. Good. Well, I'll drink to that. So, I dare say, Dick, we've got an interesting little segue that you're going to sign off on. A, a, a little <laughs> payoff line coming your oh, way. <laughs> well, well, why not? Well, I thought... Because we had the subject with Ben and uh, Jamie and sailing schools and all the rest of it, uh, I thought we I'd had a, I'd I'd considered the alphabet again, and it reminded me of the the bargeman's alphabet, which is an old song uh, from my part of the world on the east coast of England, and it goes like this: A is for the anchor which goes up and down. B is for the bowsprit which goes in and out. C is for the capstan, which goes round and round. And D Just is stick, for the dog stick, 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 that stops on stop, our stern. Stop, is that stop, enough? Stop, is that enough? <laughs> there, is a there is a chorus. No, There's no, chorus. it's enough. Can't we just say goodnight? Let's just say goodnight. Night. Night, Thanks, night. everyone. <laughs>